Ah, um, I'm seeing a through line we're going to get into in a minute here. Absolutely. <laughs> there, there is a through line. As you just said, the seed was planted early in many, many different kinds of seeds. I didn't realize how literal that was. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> this is the Drive-By History Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Ken Magos. On today's episode, I'll be joined by a Kane University professor, Dr. Elizabeth Hyde. Let's get to it. So, Beth, I'm so happy you were able to join us today. I get a chance to talk to you and learn a little bit more about your education, projects you're working on, things like that. So walk us through. I'm always curious about people who become historians. When did you realize you had such a a deep interest in history? For me, that interest goes all the way back to when I was a little girl. Um, I loved National Geographic magazine and especially anything having to do with archaeology and um, ancient Egypt and Pompeii and, (laughs) and so forth. But I also read a lot of historical fiction and uh, semi-autobiographical works like the Little House in the Prairie series mm-hmm. um, that for me resonated a little bit differently, I think, because I grew up on a farm. Ah. And so I think I was able to connect parts of how I lived to things that were comparable to the experiences of those, you know, living on the frontier, um, the, you know, we would lab- end up labeling as the pioneers who, mm-hmm. who settled um, west of the Appalachians, but um, understanding too how things had evolved and changed. And, and so I think I read those, I read all of those books with a slightly different I from from a lot of the readers and and yeah. maybe that sparked in me some some interest in 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 bringing some critical analysis <laughs> to um to the way people lived actually I I I think so well, it sounds like that seed was planted at a pretty young age then the, the seed was planted at a at a young age yes yeah. were your parents interested in history was your family was this something you guys discussed <laughs> Interested, not um, not professionally interested, um, but interested, and they certainly encouraged my own <laughs> my own curiosity. So. <laughs> so, tell us about growing up on a farm. I'm really curious. I had an aunt and uncle who had a farm that I used to visit in the summers. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up on a farm in West Virginia, hmm. um, and um, not a huge farm. Um, beef, cattle, sheep. Um, a lot of the summertime spent working in the hayfield. That that kind of thing. And then my parents also had a greenhouse, um, a, a pretty extensive family greenhouse business where we grew um, uh, bedding plants and vegetable plants for both a retail and a wholesale uh, market. So ah, um, I'm seeing a through line we're going to get into in a minute here. Absolutely. <laughs> there, There is a through line. As you just said, the seed was planted early in many, many different kinds of seeds. I didn't realize how literal that was. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, no, that's fascinating. So yeah. I I know that, you know, you specialize in European history, but a particular aspect of it. Absolutely. So um, as I mentioned to you earlier, mm-hmm. I was you know sort of interested in how people's 
you know, a change over time mm-hmm. and, and how people's lives and lifestyles and, 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 and culture changes over time. Um, and so I was particularly interested in the period of the 16th, 17th, 18th century, where you really see the emergence of the modern world, the, mm-hmm. the, um, the not entirely complete collapse of a more su- superstitious, magical um, way of thinking about how the world functioned. And then with the arrival of the scientific revolution, um, and of course, the age of exploration, a very different idea about how the world worked and the ability of human beings to to control that 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 world. So so I was always so I became very interested as a college student in that early modern period. Um, and of course, Western Europe was the area where you see this emerging. It's that transformation that's going to shape the early history of the United States as, as well. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, but I was always very interested in art as well. And oh. so developed an interest in, in art history. I had done a, a minor in art history. And when I got to graduate school and was really coming to understand from a professional perspective how these interests came together, I realized I was a cultural historian, right? I was an historian who was who was interested in a, in a broad um, range of sources and the 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 material aspects of 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 life in this in this time period. And from that, I became interested in the use of flowers in portraiture in that Mm. period flowers that are more frequently used to ornament uh, portraits of women in the time period but also sometimes men and and so I was exploring this as as my likely dissertation topic as a graduate student and the more I got into my to my work in in conversation with my thesis advisor um, I said you know what I don't think we fully understand how flowers functioned in society at this moment. What did flowers mean in the 17th century? Why was it so important that the flowers were included there? There are very old, of course, um, connections between women and fertility and flowers sure. and, 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 and beauty. So in that sense, it made perfect sense. But they're far too prevalent in this time period for that to be the only answer. And of course, by the time you get to the 17th century, you begin to see very specific kinds of flowers included in painting of the era in in baroque art and and uh, and I said I think my real project here is to do a cultural history of flowers at this particular moment so and what then, did you discover I'm curious yeah can you give us some insight absolutely so um the area of, of 17th century culture, floriculture that's most frequently examined is the tulip mania uh-huh. of the Netherlands when in the in the first decades of the 17th century, um, people began to cultivate the tulip, which had arrived from um from Turkey um, into Western Europe in the last decades of, of the 16th century. Um, the tulip showed a tendency to um, variegate uh, rather easily. And so people began selectively breeding them to produce different colors. Um, they didn't know at the time that the most wildly striped versions, the red and white striped versions, were caused by a virus. Um, but they, I didn't know that either. <laughs> yeah, they, absolutely. And, and that created all kinds of problems because that meant that they were uh, very irregularly variegating and mm. you couldn't predict 
what bulb was going to produce that. And that became a serious financial problem because the desire for these tulips was so great um, that, of course, the wealthy and the fashionable, the cultural elites wanted to have them. Gardens, formal gardens have become a sign of stature, of cultural accomplishment. And in the 17th century, that meant having the right kinds of flowers. I want to go back for a second, though, before we go on. You talked about tulips coming from Turkey. Yeah. We associate them, I think, generally with Holland. Yes. And that is where they were first commercially produced. Okay. So the bulbs themselves um, are are believed to have originated in Turkey, and the mm. first bulbs were um, landed in the hands of a botanist, um, Clusius, in who who I believe was um, at Leiden at the university there, had a botanical garden there, um, and um, their early history is 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 associated with him. Okay. Um, but it is in the Netherlands where you begin to see, but it, it spreads very rapidly. It's a culture that's shared in Italy. It's shared in England, though a little bit later, and it's shared especially in France, where where my own research um ended up being focused. Um, and that was that these wealthy elites, these cultural elites, wanted to have those tulips in oh. their gardens. Mm-hmm. The demand for them became so great in um, the the first decades of the 17th century that people were actually trading in tulip bulbs, and there they was, had that much value. They had that much value. There was wow. a dramatic inflation of the value of tulip bulbs, which then dramatically crashed, and so the tulip ended up becoming then a symbol of the ephemerality of this new capitalistic um, economy. But what my own research found was that the the interest in these flowers, in these elite flowers, went beyond the tulip. So in the same period that people were collecting tulips, they were also collecting anemones, narcissus, irises, um, ranunculi, um, were were um, auriculas. Uh, they, those were the most important carnations. These okay. were called florist flowers. Um, mm. And they were the flowers that were cultivated by people who uh, came to be defined. And this is a this is a term that even ends up in um, one of the most important 17th century French dictionaries, curious florists. So it uh. was it was a type. It was a it was uh. an identity. It was a cultural identity. Um, and it was largely male. Because it was Hmm. men who had the geopolitical connections and the money to acquire them. And as they were selectively breeding, as they were interacting with botanists who were also studying um, um, and and producing new varieties of of plants, it was identified as well. It was connected to science, to the world of science. So it implied cultural sophistication, intellectual sophistication, and wealth. Um, that makes and, sense. Exactly, exactly. So then you have these networks of of men who who were literally flower connect collectors, huh. and then you find very importantly the adoption of that whole language of floral cultural sophistication into the political realm, because of uh-huh. course in this era you have um, a 
within France, for example, where you have a feudal nobility um, and, and of course, an absolute monarchy um, uh, becoming ever stronger with Louis XIII and then Louis XIV um, in the 17th century, they, of course, have to have flowers as well. Oh. And Louis XIV understood that one of the most important ways that he could express his power over French society was to express, was to assert his power over French culture. And he gathered the resources to, of course, build the largest, most magnificent garden in Europe at the time at Versailles. Uh Um, And um, the gardeners, in fact, then put in place um, a whole network of systems, nursery gardens, nursery gardens in the south of France that would furnish bulbs. What what they figured out how to do, and, and very important and not surprising sort of mercantilistic uh-huh. economic approach was to, in the south, in, from their from a naval base on the Mediterranean in the south of France, right. send people out to buy immature and therefore much cheaper bulbs from Mediterranean sources, raise them to maturity in the south of France, and then ship them north to be planted at Versailles and other royal palaces. Wow. Yes, it's absolutely. I'm just imagining a a visitor to Versailles at the time probably is seeing some flowers they've never heard of or never seen before. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Unique flowers extensive numbers of flowers. Mm. Um, They developed a bedding out system at Versailles where they would raise flowers to blossom in um, in the orangeries and the conservatories, what the, the the predecessors to greenhouses as we would understand them today, um, raise them until they started to flower, and then just plop them pot and all and all into the soil into a particular parterre or part of the garden overnight, so that it appeared as though they had appeared magically, <laughs> and and that was the intent. It was the mm-hmm. the argument that Louis the Fourteenth controlled nature. Um, and it, and, you know, we, we think of it in allegorical or metaphorical terms. The king is so powerful that he can harness nature. Um, he can make the, you know, he can make water, you know, spout mm-hmm. out of the fountains. He can make, you know, his vegetable gardener could produce peas and other vegetables in the off season. And they could have all of these flowers magically appear in, in the garden, um, they even had one garden at the Trianon part of, of Versailles that was almost exclusively planted in uh, fragrant flowers. So hyacinths, oh, wow. jasmines, and tuberoses, where you're to be overwhelmed by the by the perfume of them. <laughs> there was a pavilion in the garden where where the elites who were invited to the Trianon Palace would go and 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 enjoy that fragrance. Oh. But they report having been driven inside at times because the fragrance was so was so strong. So you were, it was this sensory, um, this sensory demonstration of the power of the king. But from another angle, it's not just about art and iconography. Um, The rather really important thing about the late 16th century all the way through into the middle of the 19th century is that Europe and indeed the, the uh, much of the world was experiencing what we now refer to as a little ice age. Mm-hmm. And so the average temperatures slightly declined. 
the climate conditions became highly unpredictable. So there were late frosts and early frosts, really dry summers, really wet summers. Mm-hmm. And that was wreaking havoc with the ability for countries, even France, which is one of the most prosperous in Western Europe, mm-hmm. um, to ensure a steady supply of food for the French people. Right. So even though, you know, it's Louis XIV saying, I have power over nature, that power over nature was no trivial thing when you're actually struggling to feed people and you have people rioting in the streets when there's not enough, not enough grain. The Bourbon monarchy and Louis XIV in particular was far more effective in producing these allegorical demonstrations of power in the gardens than they were in actually impacting agricultural productivity and right. actually solving the problem of, of, of supply um, for people. And those those problems and challenges continued right up to the end of the 18th century. And of course, yeah. the food supply and the price of bread yeah. was a major factor um, leading to the French Revolution sure. um, and the eventual overflow of, of uh, overthrow of the Bourbon monarchy. Um, so it's all, you know, it's it's really central to the communication of political power. Um, wow. It's really central to the to the maintenance of political power. So I'm imagining that a lot of these plants would only be available to the elite. When did they become Absolutely. available to common folks? When could you and I go and buy these? Yeah. So not that I'm calling us common folks, exactly. but we're not. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So there was a very long history of um, selling bouquets of flowers, often wild flowers or more commonly available violets, roses and things that goes all the way back to antiquity. Mm. Um, Women, usually underprotected women, um, often those who had had to resort to prostitution or who Mm -hmm. were begging in the streets would sell bouquets of flowers for as a charitable, you know, to, to seek as, as they were essentially begging for, for financial support. Right. So that tradition is very, very old. The um, use of flower bouquets as an offering in, in the church is very, mm-hmm. very old. So ornamental flowers to decorate our lives is something that really, you know, goes very, very far back in, mm-hmm. in human history and in, in European culture, you really have um the development of the first big commercial nurseries um, for for plants in the in the 17th century. The oh, Dutch, that early, okay. That that early. The Dutch are going to be the most successful, um, but but it will spread around you know around Western Europe. By the time you get to the first half of the 19th century, it becomes if we want to put it in these terms, more democratized. And Mm -hmm. so uh, you begin to have um, the production of gardening manuals that were cheaper, you know, cheaper books that, you know, that, that ordinary people might, um, you know, might be able to afford. So, and then by the time you get to the end of the, of the 19th century, you have, um, it becomes a working class tradition, uh, flower contests, flower growing contests um, in England, for example, mm-hmm. a, a deeply ingrained working class kind. So the, the gendering and the class pieces are just really, really fascinating. Yeah. It's an interesting aspect to it. Yeah. Very much Absolutely. so. Um, I, I, while you were talking, I was immediately thinking of the Covent Garden 
flower seller mm-hmm. idea that that trope Absolutely. that we have and and yeah as a way of making money mm-hmm. trying to sell I'm curious though do the flowers themselves have any specific meaning we think of if I give you a red rose it symbolizes love yes there was a very intricate language of flowers mm-hmm. um, that um becomes highly elaborate in the Middle Ages. There's there's mm. both religious symbolism to the rose and the lily in particular. The lily often represent the purity of, of Mary um, within the Christian tradition. Um, and then you have in the med- medieval chivalric tradition, the rose for love and, and various meanings for, for different flowers that gets revived um, in the beginning of the 19th century, the whole language of flowers becomes okay. becomes really intricate. And it's interesting that that emerges at the same time that Linnaeus and his classification of plants, which is a is based on the sexuality, the sexual reproduction mm-hmm. of plants. Mm-hmm. Um, so yet again, you have some play at the gendering of plants and the study of, of plants. Right. Um, you do have, by the time you get to the late 18th century, the perception that women could study botany, not professionally, um, but they could, that was an intellectual pursuit that was suitable for for women. Um, even Rousseau, who yeah. was an incredible misogynist, and but an enthusiastic botanist, said that women could could study botany. Wow, how generous. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and then you've got someone like Elizabeth Coleman White who comes along and helps standardize the blueberry and the cranberry. Absolutely. And women were even though they were, you know, largely excluded from the academy mm-hmm. um and and the formal scientific study of plants, there are important women um connected to floriculture um, professionally in different ways. So um, I think you're right too. I don't think she was professionally trained. I think, I don't know that she had a degree in botany. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't Mm -hmm. think so, but I, but I, but I don't know. We did that episode a couple of years ago and it's like in the back of my mind. I saw it and it was wonderful. But I don't remember, I don't know her, you know, her, her uh, training either. Um, But flower painting back to, you know, the interest in flowers. Sure. Flower painting was acceptable for women mm. um, because that meant they could they could use their artistic develop their artistic talents in painting something that was commercially and aesthetically valuable, um, but it didn't require the study of the human nude, which was which meant that women wouldn't have to be formally trained oh. in the artistic academies where their presence would have been unacceptable. I didn't think of that, but you're right. Yeah, yeah they so probably couldn't a, have. Yeah, yeah, that's a part of it. And so the, some of the first women who were admitted to the French Academy um, of, of Painting are flower painters. Wow. And I know in our own area here, as an aside, mm-hmm. we did an episode on Madison, which is known as Rose mm-hmm. City. Yes. Because it was a hotbed for development of a lot of different varieties of roses that mm-hmm. were then spread throughout the world. Yeah. Yeah. And and roses. So one of the most important um, uh, patrons of 
the culture of roses is, of course, Josephine, mm-hmm. um, Empress yep. um, under under Napoleon, yep. and she um, her rose collection at Malmaison and other palaces mm-hmm. in in France was unsurpassed, um, mm-hmm. and she was the patron of of Redoute, who was the painter of most of the images, the painted images of roses that have become iconic mm. in 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 Western wow. uh, rose culture. Wow, it's, I, I love that you studied this so much. It's such a fascinating history, and there's so much there's so much depth to it. There, there is. It's it's it has been a wonderful area to to work on, and it, as you've suggested, brings us over to this side of the Atlantic in some mm-hmm. really important, really important ways. And what I, you know, what I found once I ended up in New Jersey and and teaching here at Kane University and began Mm -hmm. to explore William Livingston, um, was looking at some of his papers Mm -hmm. and found a letter to him from the French consul in New York, Louis-Guillaume Otto, um, essentially asking Livingston for permission for the French to purchase a piece of land in present day Hoboken. Oh, wow. And to, to serve as a nursery, to serve as a garden. And I started following the, the threads of that document. And I realized that this was connected to a set of documents that I had noted existed many years earlier when I was in Paris doing my dissertation research on floriculture, mm-hmm. um, a whole collection of documents related to American nurseries, the Pepiniere d'Amérique. So, and I, I, I noted it. I said, I've got to get back to this because I'm fascinated, but you know, had to move on with the dissertation. I, I went back to those documents mm-hmm. and what emerges out of that story is, is a good part of the 18th century Ooh. relationship between plants, their cultural, economic, political, geopolitical value, and the French monarchy again, sitting right here in my backyard, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> um, at, yeah. at, at Cain. Um, and what those documents revealed were an 18th century attempt on the part of the French monarchy to gather knowledge, but especially specimens of North American plants, but especially trees that could be acclimatized in France. Interesting. Yes. And it's part of the colonial project, which, you know, everybody um, in Western Europe was looking for the next sugarcane, the next tobacco, um, Mm -hmm. what cotton would become, these these cash crops that stood to transform the economy, transform the geopolitical power Mm -hmm. of these countries. Um, And even play a a, um, for, for the French perspective, a military role. So mm. the French had had botanists who were doing some prospecting and collecting of plants as early as the French were exploring North America, and and especially as as they were in the Mississippi River Valley and and in um, Quebec and so forth. They had some haphazard gathering of of specimens, but it began to their interest accelerated in the 1770s and 80s. The French, of course, had been defeated by the British in the Seven Years' War, uh-huh. um, um, that war concluding in 1763. Um, they were defeated in large part because they did not have a navy that could compete with the British Navy and uh-huh. therefore couldn't support 
their troops and sustain a war on this side of the Atlantic. And of course, at this point, all of these ships are wooden. All of these mm-hmm. ships require extensive lumber supplies. They require masts that were a specific sort of, of type of tree. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're always looking for pines that are going to make masts and oak that is going to build ships. And the British had um, very successfully exploited North American resources in the 13 colonies, especially in New England, in order to supplement the, the, the lumber that they needed for their for their navy. And the French, when the Americans began to f- seek independence, when the American Revolution broke out, mm-hmm. the French saw an opportunity as as the divide deepened between uh, the American colonists and the British to jump into North America and see if they could therefore exploit those uh-huh. resources that the British now were going to lose control over. Yep. So, yes. And so that is exactly what began to happen in uh-huh. uh, the late in the late 1770s and into the 1780s. Wow. Yes, it's it's a, an amazing an amazing story, and they basically charged the their diplomatic corps with gathering plants, hmm. and um, they attempted to do so. Um, Crevacour of Letters of American Farmer fame was gathering mm-hmm. wood samples of woods, different kinds of, of of lumber that was extracted from different trees. He he sent that back to France. They gathered seeds and live specimens. Um, uh, Louis Guillaume Otto in in New York was doing the same. The Marquis de Mar- Marbois in Philadelphia was doing the same. And finally, they decided that they needed to escalate the project and actually send a botanist. And so it was at that point in 1785 okay. that Louis XVI sent French botanist André Michaud mm. from France to North America to do to do this on a professional level, essentially yeah. to gather trees um, that could be sent back. And so um, he arrived in December of 1785 in New York um, and decided that the way he would conduct his research would be to um, take expeditions um, into the countryside, into the wilderness. He goes as far north as the Hudson Bay. He goes as far south into Florida and into the Bahamas. But he needed nursery gardens where he could bring the specimens that he found right. and, and and allow them to grow temporarily in those nursery gardens, but also to begin to reproduce them. Right. Um, exactly. And so in 1786, he reached out to Governor William Livingston. Ah, there's the connection. He, yeah. There is the connection. Yeah. And he is the botanist that was going to build a garden on this plot of land that he eventually was granted. There's a wonderful, wonderful letter from Livingston where um, the French are asking for to allow him to buy this land. And mm-hmm. Livingston, of course, you know, having we've gone through the American Revolution, Livingston mm-hmm. became, you know, a, a a firmly committed patriot and an essential, um, essential uh, part of the American um, success in the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, committed constitutionalist um, wrote uh, wrote back to the French and said that he was a governor 
and not a king. Mm-hmm. And therefore, he could not simply waive the rules that prohibited a Frenchman from buying land in mm-hmm. New Jersey, but he could recommend that the state assembly take up the cause and pass an edict uh, allowing Michaud to make this purchase. And so that is that is wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, I have a question funny. for you though, in all of this, sure. because I know in a past episode of Drive by History, we talked about the natural landscape. Yes. What was here before a lot of the colonists brought over cuttings of plants, vegetables, yes. things like that. Yes. So a lot of what we take for granted as being American, like apples and waves mm-hmm. of grain, and I'm um, no, not not yes. really North American. Exactly. If exactly. we go to Western Europe now, are we seeing a sampling of plants that would have been indigenous to North America? We are seeing some of those yeah. plants. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, there are two key components to this. One is that Taste in gardening, the aesthetic of gardens began to change in the 18th century. And it occurs first in England, um, where you see a rejection of the formal, highly clipped, highly geometrical symmetry that you see at Versailles Mm -hmm. in favor of something that looked more natural, even though it was a highly complicated it was anything um, but <laughs> it was anything but natural but it appeared more natural and okay. you would walk through winding pathways um through a landscape that had um untrimmed trees but mm-hmm. trees that are planted specifically in order to create a certain vista or a picturesque view right. that you were to that you were to take in and the because Now, while there are follies and fountains and structures within those gardens, um, there was a greater importance on the vegetation to contribute to that sense of the natural. So they became interested in trees and shrubs and flowering shrubs that could introduce different textures and different colors and different Uh shapes into Uh the garden. And... It was American trees and shrubs and flowering shrubs that became the most fashionable for introducing that that diversity, that old diversity. Absolutely. And the Americans got this. And, and so most famously, the Bartrams in Philadelphia. So Bartram's Garden um, um, in Philadelphia is one of the most important early botanical gardens and commercial nurseries in, wow. in the Americas. And the Bartrams very successfully marketed their commercial resources in England. And so you could be in England or in France and you could buy what was called a Bartram's box, which was a box that had a selection of seeds that would produce the look that you were supposed to have in your 18th century garden. Wow. That's amazing. Yes. Yes. And and so you absolutely have American specimens shaping what would become the English style landscape garden in the 18th and into the 19th into the 19th centuries. And Bartram wow. had then a, a cousin, I believe he's, he's related um, Humphrey Marshall, who then who produced a book, um, a catalog of American trees that could be successfully grown in Europe. And this was a commercial, this was a commercial operation. Wow. Wow. So where are we today as far as gardening goes? I mean, it seems like 
depending on driving around my neighborhood, I live in New Jersey. So obviously, you know, we are the garden state. Things do tend to grow well here. Where are we on that continuum? Are we still using a lot of the same plantings or is it something new? Um, So... There are all kinds of things happening yeah. that have well, been it's pretty enabled. much everything is happening. Every, I think, but everything yeah. is happening. It's been mm-hmm. a, been enabled by um, the evolution of of botany and commercial um, nurseries, the commercial production of seeds and the hybrid varieties of yeah. all of these different plants. That, as we know um, from our consumption of produce, has mm-hmm. a broad range of effects on the end on the end result. So mm-hmm. um, we can have tomatoes and strawberries year round because right. we can now import them from the far corners um, um, of of the world um, at any time that we want. But in order for them to survive those that transportation, they've been bred in ways that result mm-hmm. in a perfect aesthetic look and um, sturdiness that allows them to be to be shipped around. Right. Sometimes that has meant loss of fragrance or loss of flavor, um, and so changes have been you know changes take place that impact um, that impact in in some important ways. Now, hybrids, disease resistant plants mean mm. we're going to be more successful in growing things. True. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's a trade off no matter how you. Ex- yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still see waxing and waning of fashion in flowers or in plantings in mm-hmm. in the yard. One year impatience will be in, the next year no impatience, and we're mm-hmm. back to good old geraniums. Um, <laughs> um, so so fashion continues to play a mm-hmm. key role. Um, I know from growing up in in family in the business, right, mm-hmm. that, that the gendering continues to be fascinating mm-hmm. you know, we send bouquets of flowers that are you know that are um you know messages of love for right. example or right. appreciation or thank you mm-hmm. um but you have within families this you know who's in charge of the flowers flower gardens who grows the vegetables right, um, right. in ways that that plays out really really interestingly um well, that's it. That's fascinating to me, though. So another aspect to your scholarship also is women's studies. And I think since you're talking so much about gender roles, I think yes. it's an interesting time to to dip into that as well. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, um, you know, the, the interest in, in flowers really came in part out of this, this interest in the representation of, of women in the early mm-hmm. modern period. And and the flower connection is is key here because of the relationship between women and women's bodies and fertility mm-hmm. and and flowers mm-hmm. was regarded as um, unruly. Um, the relationship between women selling flowers and women selling sex, the, the equation of the two in the streets mm. um, was regarded as dangerous. Mm. Um, and another piece or, or culturally suspect, right? And mm-hmm. another piece of it is the fact that knowledge of herbal healing was prior to the professionalization of medicine, um, the realm primarily of, of women. 
Um, And so... And bordered um, on witchcraft almost, didn't it? (laughs) Exactly. And many of the women in this same period that I'm interested in studying, right? The Mm -hmm. 16th, 17th, um, 18th centuries, when the the witch craze erupted um, in Western Europe and then in colonial America, um, very often women who were suspected of being witches were also women who had a reputation in their community as being a healer Um, because they had knowledge of, of herbs and Uh herbal medicine and herbal healing. Um, It's a fascinating time period because you see that the, the knowledge of herbs and the use of herbs sort of straddling what at the time was a, was an intricate and, um, completely intertwined understanding of the ability of these herbs to have an impact, a medical impact. Uh Today, we would look at what they did and we would sort of separate out the physical impact of an herb, what happens to the body when you ingest it, Uh from the ritualized uses of those herbs or the ritualized you mean practices. the incantation doesn't the incantations, have a <laughs> for example exactly and and today you know we we separate the magic from the science exactly. but in the early 17th century it was entirely uh-huh. inseparable uh-huh. um and so and so you have women and flowers being regarded you know the the the, the connections between the two of them um are um you know, it's it's beauty, but it's sexuality, and therefore temptation, and they're dangerous. Dangerous, exactly. Yeah. At the same time, that men are saying, "But we're cultivating the rarest blossoms, and they're going around and visiting each other's flower collections, um, mm-hmm. and, and and asserting something very different about themselves, right? Um, through their cultural consumption of of flowers. So it's absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Hmm. Um, but yes, it 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 is related to one of the most horrible um events in the in the early modern period and that is um, that is the witch trials and oh yeah which we uh, covered you and i were we talked abs- about that out in the hamptons yes for one of the earliest <sighs> um earliest yeah that predated cases. salem if i remember it, correctly it predate mm-hmm. salem and salem is interesting because it's very late mm-hmm. in the history of the witch trials by the time the witch trials break out in salem they were the 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 craze or the mania or the terror of the witch trials had almost completely ended in Western Europe. Okay. Um, so the colonies were always a little bit behind in 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 what was in what was happening. Yeah. Um, but it's very much um, you know the witch trials and the focus on the fear that these women might either through their use of herbs or uh-huh. their knowledge of the devil might harness the powers of the devil to cause bad things to happen is of course rooted in the same anxieties that, you know, led Louis the 14th to say, I control nature in his garden because the climate was incredibly unpredictable at this time. Crops were no, were, you know, enough grain to get through the winter was not guaranteed and Uh and levels of anxiety ran extremely, extremely high. Well, that makes sense. Also, I mean, you you talked about separating the magic from the science. Yes. The magic, the incantation that goes along with those herbs 
Yes. But also the lack of knowledge of the science of what those herbs are going to do. Yes. I'm sure a lot of people got sick. Some people oh, probably died. Yes. Yeah. So of course, yeah. And if, yes. who are you going to blame? Who are you going to blame? <laughs> exactly. And when you can't control the outcomes because the medical capabilities were so rudimentary, mm-hmm. um, then the yeah. desire to find a cause or lay blame for right. the bad outcome. Right. And you're still a century or yeah. two away from really understanding the biology of the body. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, that makes sense. Okay. So tell us what projects you're working on. What's coming up for you? So what's coming up for me is um, continued work on the botanical mission of Andre Michaud. Yep. Um, Andre Michaud's uh, was just in the archives um, in Paris, looking at some of the documents that um, he sent back um, to his bosses in in France as he was gathering plants, including the wonderful map um, that he sent to them showing where in present day Hoboken he had purchased his land to make his garden, explaining that situated right between New Jersey and New York. um, But within that Meadowlands area, he was able to have easy access by water to Manhattan, Mm -hmm. where he could ship these plants back. Mm -hmm. Um, um, It's just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful document. Um, So I'm continuing to work on his his papers, and I'm doing some network analysis, essentially looking at the plants that he brought from France or were sent to him by his bosses in France to the United States that he planted either in his garden in Hoboken or the much larger operation that he established in Charleston, South Carolina, um, looking at those plants and looking at um, how um, the those elite landowners and gardeners on this side of the Atlantic were incorporating European plants oh. or global plants, because some of the specimens that, that Michaud brought from France were originally from China. So you really right. see a global network uh, mm-hmm. coming into existence. And then you see the desire for American plants that Michaud is feeding into elite French gardens of the 18th century. And wow. um and so in the um in 1792 in the revolution many of the french nobility who had been the the purchasers of american plants the collectors of american plants of course fled because their lives were at stake they were at risk yeah <laughs> yes exactly um and many of them of course would 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 go to the guillotine mm-hmm. um the french government and this continued into the Republican government. It's one of the one of the more successful attempts to take a royal institution and nationalize it. Okay, uh, and that was to take the royal nursery, the Jardin des Plantes, in Paris and transform it um, and, and transform it into what would become a national botanical garden. Hmm. Um, in the wake of the French Revolution, as the nobility fled the government actually confiscated plants from the gardens of the nobility and took them to the Jardin des Plantes and Uh, into nurseries that then they established at Versailles once they had essentially kicked the the royal family. Wow, but they're creating a repository for all of these. Exactly. And in these records, I've been exploring the records of the confiscations and they repeatedly distinguish 
as they're listing all of these different species of, 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 of flowers and flowering shrubs and trees, they're distinguishing what came from America. Mm. They are still trying wow. to, uh, to grasp or hold on to collect, cultivate what they thought was this American botanical richness mm. um, and incorporate mm. it into the, into their, their collection. So I'm working on, I'm working on that wow. and I'm continuing to work on, on William Livingston as an example right. of the American, the American archetype. He like Thomas Jefferson, like George Washington um, was an enthusiastic gardener. Mm -hmm. um, and at Liberty Hall, he the very first thing he did before he built the home on his estate, Liberty Hall, was to start working on the gardens. Mm. And so he hired um, some some local um, workers and also he hired members of the Crane family in Elizabethtown mm. to um, plant apple trees. Dozens okay. of apple trees. Um, this was the first thing that you did to mm -hmm. improve your garden. You, you know, to improve the piece of land, mm -hmm. you had to have an orchard. Drinking cider was, of course, incredibly important. Well, I was going to say there was, yeah, there was a yes. sideline to this. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but in addition to those apple trees, he does he does um, some intentional gathering of of um elite versions of the orchard and that is it's a wonderful letter from the late 1760s before the house was built at liberty mm -hmm. hall where he had a friend who was studying in london and he asked this friend to go to the nursery of um gordon and dermer and thompson it was one of the uh, most important nurseries in london wow. in the late 18th century, they produced catalogs. Livingston must have been in possession of one of their one of their catalogs, oh. and he asked him to. He basically asked for an order that includes over, and I, I'm I'm blanking on the numbers, yeah. but 20, 30, 40 different pears and plums. Wow. Okay. Any particular reason pears and plums? They were among the most fashionable fruits of yep. the late 18th century. Mm -hmm. So he was creating a garden at an orchard at Versailles that would, or excuse me, at that, Liberty Hall. I was going to say. Yes. That would have had, that would have had um, those elite fruit trees growing in them. Wow. And Do any of these specimens still exist? So none of the um, fruit trees still exist. Okay. The oldest fruit tree is a pear is a pear tree that dates to probably the 1820s or 30s. Um, okay. Do they just not live that long? Is that the issue? yeah? They they okay. don't they don't live that long. But what we do have is a different kind of tree growing in the front of Liberty Hall. So at the end of the letter where William Livingston requested all of these pears and plums, the varieties, the named varieties that he wanted, presumably listed right out of the catalog, mm -hmm. at the very bottom of the, of the letter, he said, and please have the nurserymen add two quarts of horse chestnut seeds. Ah. Yes, the horse chestnut tree. I also, was just going to say. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 
was um, not native to North America. It was not mm-hmm. native to Western Europe. It also was a specimen from probably the Asia Minor uh, region. Mm-hmm. But in the 17th century, the horse chestnut had become very popular um, as a tree that could be successfully used in formal gardens. John Evelyn wrote about them in England, explained that they were suitable for planting along grand alleys in in these formal gardens. Um, And so they became extremely popular in in Western Europe. And then the colonists, of course, in, in, um, in North America were interested in importing the finest things from Europe. Of course. Thought that Peter Collinson was probably the origin of one of the first chest documented horse chestnut coming um, into the Philadelphia region, which would have been a couple of decades earlier than mm. William Livingston's 1769 letter buying two quarts of, of horse chestnut seeds. Mm. Um, but there is living right outside of the um, of what's now the front door of Liberty Hall, a mm-hmm. horse chestnut tree. Family lore says that 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 tree was planted in 1772 by his daughters. Wow. So we have a living specimen of an American gardener's desire to create a formal garden in America for which he acquired seeds from the most fashionable nursery in London. Wow. So it's a, it's, it's. That's fascinating. And, and people can, I know Liberty Hall is open to the public. Liberty Hall is open to the, open to the public Mm -hmm. and the horse chestnut tree. Um, It, it is thriving. Thriving is a little bit strong. It's still, it's struggling in some ways. Some limbs have had to be cut off and over the years, Different attempts have been made to support the tree and 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 ensure that um, that. I think most people don't realize plants are not not every plant is like a sequoia or redwood. Yeah, they don't all live for thousands of years. Yes, yes, and 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 so efforts are being made to Hmm. sustain it, of course, and efforts are being made to um, gather the horse chestnuts and reproduce them. And in fact, I'm not sure if the same is happening this year, but last year Liberty Hall um, was actually um, selling in exchange for a donation to Liberty Hall horse chestnut trees wow in your own garden which you can own a piece of history in your own you garden. can own a piece of history you can own a piece of the history of gardening wow. in western culture wow i love that that's fascinating i had no idea i've been to liberty hall i didn't realize that chestnut tree out front was important it's, it is it's important it's mm-hmm. and it, it's one of the oldest documented um, trees in the state of New Jersey, but one that illustrates, um, it illustrates, it's a living example of the cultural role that many of the founding fathers, many of the founders were trying to play. That Mm. William Livingston, um, a highly educated man, somebody of an an elite family, the, Mm. the, the New York political dynasty, the Livingston family, owner of a wonderful library, um, the contents of which he carefully listed in a, in a book list that, that our students have studied, um, also wanted to be a gardener like the elite men on the other side of 
the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And his letters, just like Thomas Jefferson's letters and George Washington's letters, are filled with exchanges, whether it was with his son-in-law, John Jay, um, or or others about the vegetables growing in their gardens, the fruit trees, the sharing of specimens, the sharing of seeds really is an entire, there's an entire sociability, social networks, cultural networks built up around the exchange of plants in this time period. And documented for you to study. And documented. How fortunate are we? That's amazing. So where can people learn more about some of these projects that you're working on? Is there Um, a website or something they can visit? (laughs) I know everybody needs a website. <laughs> everybody needs a website. And and my website has sadly um, succumbed to the transition from old Google sites to new Google sites. Yep. Um, but, um, you know, my, my work has been published. So mm-hmm. um, my book, Cultivated Power, Flowers, Culture, and Politics in the Reign of Louis XIV, um, is available as are numerous articles that I've published on um, the mission of, of Andre Michaud. Wonderful. Um, and and hopefully soon um, a, a volume, a full yeah. volume on the mission of, of Andre Michaud that is uh, titled From um, from Monarchical Climates to Republican Soil. Wonderful phrase of William Livingston's that defines exactly what's at stake in floriculture, plant culture in the 18th century, looking at how monarchies are attempting to exploit knowledge of and and resources, um, horticultural resources to support their goals, and how the new Republic of the United States is going to respond in kind. I love that. I love that. We will definitely look forward to that. Yeah, that's exciting. So I'm curious, you've been with us on a couple episodes of Drive-By History. I'm curious if you can speak to why a show like Drive-By History is important. Absolutely. Drive-By History, and I've had such a wonderful time participating. Oh, we loved having you on the show. In this series. It is absolutely essential to feeding public knowledge of our past and helping the broader public understand that our history is all around us, um, that our history may be in the blueberries that we're buying um, at the grocery store, or our history is looking at our transportation system, or that people that we never thought of as being key to the shaping of our culture, whether we're thinking about New Jersey or the larger region, has been shaped by people and factors um, that go back decades and and centuries. And as a professor of history, um, I look across the classroom and I know that most of my students aren't going to go on to become professional historians. Many of them will go on to become social studies teachers. Some of them will be professors of of history. But I want all of them, regardless of where, where they end up, to have an understanding that the ground they're walking on has a history. I want all of them to understand the importance of bringing their historical um, sensibilities to the other parts of the world that they consume, to the museums that they're going to go to, for for example, Um, and to have that that broader context. Drive-by history gives people that by showing them parts of history or people in history that they may have driven by every day without giving them a second thought yep. and knowing and knowing that in fact no this this shapes the way you live your life today 
Yep. We try to ignite that spark. And through the participation of wonderful historians like you, we're able to provide an interpretation you can't find anywhere else. I am so grateful that people like you take part in our series. You bring such a fresh perspective to these things. I love it. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight to be involved with the, with the oh, and Well, and we will see more of you in the future, I'm sure. Absolutely. Oh, so for our audience, you know, you can find more information about our show at drivebyhistory.org. You can watch past episodes there. You can see the, the episodes we were talking about tonight. Um, and um, I hope that um, you all will join us for the next episode of the Drive By History podcast. Elizabeth, thank you so much for participating today. Really thank appreciate you, it. Absolute it's been wonderful. Pleasure. All right. Mm-hmm.